are continuing our several-long series on the core values of Green Tree Community Church. Today, we're going to talk about the issue of lordship. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word lordship, I kind of have a strong negative reaction to it. I mean, we're Americans. We're the ones who left the old country to come here because we wanted to get away from lords. We don't want to bow down before kings and queens. We don't want to be people who who have to submit to somebody else's authority without, without being a part of that process. I mean, the Queen of England is cool and all that, but, you know, really, we don't want to be any part of that. We wrote the Declaration, Declaration of Independence saying we want to be free. So the whole idea of lordship really does have a negative connotation for a lot of us. That's just not the American way. We're rugged individualists. We're the people who want to be free. And yet the elders of Green Tree Community Church way back when said, this is one of the seven core values of this church. And what we want to do today is explore why that is, why it matters to this church, why it matters to us as individuals, and what it means, what the idea of lordship means in the kingdom of God. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this and see what the Bible has to say about the whole idea of lordship. Father, we don't like this word. It has connotations that are strongly negative for a lot of us, and yet it's important. And we pray that you would help us to understand the word, but even more than that, to live with the implications of your lordship in our lives and to recognize that this is an important value for us as children of God to live in such a way so that we recognize you as Lord. Thank you, Father, for the chance to come this morning and just be with you and celebrate this day with you. Thank you for your presence here today, Lord. In Christ's holy name, amen. I grew up in a very literate household. My parents were both book readers, and every time that we, we went to the library constantly, we were all, my parents were always willing and offering to buy us books. They wanted very much to instill in my brothers and me a love for reading. My parents carried books around all the time. One of my strongest memories of my parents is that of them reading. And it wasn't just books they read. They read magazines, too. Our house was flooded with magazines when I was growing up. It seemed like if there was a magazine on the market, we got it. Time, Life, Newsweek, Look, Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, New Republic, and a lot of other magazines as well. My mom got a lot of magazines, too. Uh, Better Homes and Gardens, things like that, which I didn't really pay much attention to. But we got a lot of magazines. And from the time I was at least in junior high, I began to read those magazines very faithfully. And I look forward to their coming every week. And I read a lot of magazines throughout the 60s as I was in junior high and high school. Of the, of the thousands of magazine articles I read and the hundreds of magazine covers I must have seen, I remember very few. But I remember one very, very vividly because when it showed up on our kitchen table one day where we dumped the mail, I was shocked by the question that this magazine cover was asking. It just was there staring me in the face. I thought, I can't believe the boldness of this question. Here's that magazine cover. Now, this cover, which obviously appeared in Time Magazine, was basically addressing an issue that was, was very much in the forefront of the 60s. The 60s was a time in which people questioned authority. People questioned old-fashioned assumptions. What was new was good, what was old was bad. I mean, we had watchwords and catchphrases like, if it feels good, do it, love the one you're with, make your own kind of music. 
things like that, which are all about the self, all about the individual. Now, in some ways, questioning authority and questioning the past, the spirit of the 60s, in other words, was a good thing. I mean, there were some, there were some old-fashioned ideas that needed to be done away with. And the 60s, after all, were the culmination of the civil rights movement. And I doubt that anybody would want to go back to the way things were racially in the 1950s. In the same way, the, 50, the 60s were the decade in which the women's movement began to come into prominence. And I doubt that anybody, anybody would want to go back to the way women were treated in the 1950s either. So the 60s did do some good things. Some of the challenging of authority, challenging of assumptions, was very positive. But th there were some other things that were not so good. And this magazine cover was addressing an issue that was very much at work in the 60s. It was a rise of an attitude, of a philosophy, of a mindset that, was, that had been sort of out there in academia, but is now is filtering down to everyday life and beginning to affect the lives of ordinary Americans, affecting the mindset of all of us. The magazine article was about atheistic existentialism. Existentialism is one of those words that sounds intimidating. It, talks, it sounds like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that because it's, again, philosophy, academic. When I was in high school and I first heard the word, it scared me to death because I knew it was going to be on the test. I knew they were going to uncover my ignorance on that test, and I didn't want anything to do with it. So let's try to demystify the word right away because it really isn't that, that difficult to understand. Simply put, existentialism is simply the desire that we have in the absence of any higher divine authority to make our own decisions, to choose our own way, to do what we want to do, to define meaning and morality and purpose for ourselves. That's what existentialism, existentialism is at its root. I want to call the shots. I want to define meaning. I want to determine right and wrong. And I don't want anybody telling me what to do. This is, in the eyes of the atheistic existentialist, an absurd world without meaning, so I have to find meaning for myself. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a Frenchman, was one of the leading voices of existentialism in the post-World War II world. This is what he said about existentialism. This is how he defined it. Man is alone, abandoned on earth in the midst of his infinite responsibilities, without help, with no other destiny than the one he sets himself, with no meaning other than the one he forges for himself on this earth. Now, if you look at those words, you see things like alone, abandoned, without help, no meaning. A lot of hopelessness, a lot of helplessness, a lot of futility. And he goes on to say this. Man is nothing else in his plan. He exists only to the extent that he fulfills himself. He is therefore nothing else than the ensemble of his acts, nothing else than his life. In other words, what Sartre is saying is, Life has no purpose apart from what we make of it. We make choices that determine our life. We're alone in this world, and it's up to us to decide what is true, what is untrue, what is right, and what is not. Now, that sounds really sophisticated, and that sounds really intellectual, but what it really means is that we want to do what we want to do. I mean, think of what it was like when you were four years old and you wanted a cookie before dinner. And your mother said, no, you can't have a cookie. It's going to spoil your appetite. And we threw a temper tantrum. We wanted our own way. And it's the same way today. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And all that existentialism does is put a, a philosophical veneer with a fancy word on the inherent selfishness that's a part of human nature. Again, we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we see evidence of existentialism all around us, of this self-centered mindset that says, 
I get to make my own choices. I get to do my own thing. Here's a couple examples. The first is from a placard seen at North Carolina State University. It was a Christian speaker who came to campus, and somebody who didn't believe in God was upset the speaker was there and, and carried the sign in protest. This is what the sign said. It isn't wrong to think you're right, but it isn't right to think others are wrong. The second one appeared in an advertisement placed in the Webster Kirkwood Times by a church in Kirkwood. It said this, instead of fitting into religion, find a religion that fits you. Now, I hate to say it so plainly and so boldly, but I'm, I'm going to say it as a Bible-believing Christian. I think both these statements are utter nonsense. I think they're absolute nonsense. Let's take them one at a time. It isn't wrong to think you're right, but it isn't right to think others are wrong. Well, what's the whole point of having an argument? I mean, seriously, don't you enjoy arguing? What would sports fans have to do if they, didn't, if they couldn't talk about things like this? I mean, this is the whole point of sports, frankly, is for fans to argue about things. George Clooney's a better actor than Tom Hanks. No, he's not. No, he's not. I mean, that's what we do, right? The Chicago Cubs are going to win the World Series this year. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's what we do. So on one level, that's just, a, I think it's stupid on that basis, but it's stupid on a more important basis as well. I mean, seriously. If you think child abuse is wrong, and I think it's okay. If you think Hitler had the right idea, and I think it was a moral monster, can we really say that both of us are right? There's no right or wrong there? I mean, do you really believe that? If the Bible condemns adultery and lying and stealing, and I say, ah, it doesn't matter, those things are okay. I mean, really? Is morality so loosey-goosey that we get to make up our own, own minds about what's right, what's wrong? How can two contradictory ideas, two contradictory values be true at the same time? I just think the person who said that didn't think it through very well. I don't think the person who held that placard really believes it himself. As for the second one, instead of fitting your religion, find a religion that fits you. Well, is that the way it works? I mean, is there no objective truth? Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If I say he did and you say he didn't, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And it seems to me there are serious implications that follow in the wake of whichever one of us is right and whichever one of us is wrong. We cannot ask God to fit into our agenda. Instead, we must fit into his. And someone who says we can find a religion that fits you is simply saying, I want to call the shots. I want to do what I want to do. So it seems to me that existentialism is dangerous in several ways. One, it simply eliminates God from the picture. There's no higher authority. There's no one I have to answer to. It's up to me to determine what is right and wrong. It undermines the foundation of morality. It, it, it uh, creates a world in which every individual is basically in it for himself or herself. Ernest Hemingway, who was raised as a Christian, walked away from his faith as a young man. He definitely embraced a philosophical view of life. He defined morality this way. What is moral is what I feel good after. What is immoral is what I feel bad after. Now, if you know anything at all about Hemingway, you know that he was a man who made some really bad choices in his life. He was married four times. He was unfaithful to each of his wives. He was an alcoholic. He was a big-time bully. He had lots of other issues as well he arguably did not have the strongest moral compass. And this is his assessment of his own life. He said this in 1952 in describing his own life. 
I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug into. Those words speak of futility and emptiness. Not exactly an ideal model and an ideal advertisement for America of existentialism. Perhaps our standards of right and wrong are an insufficient standard on which to base our lives. Why then is existentialism taking such a deep root in our culture and a deep root in our own lives? Well, I think really it speaks to the inherent selfishness that's a part of each of us. We are selfish people. We want to do what we want to do, and that's been a part of human nature and a part of the human condition since the beginning of time. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Very famous story, and it really does speak to this issue very clearly. Here is the reading of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. I think we can make the case that Adam and Eve were the first existentialists. They were the first people who wanted to be like God, to call the shots, to amend God's commands to a way that was suitable to them, so they could do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And every one of us who followed the wake of Adam and Eve does exactly the same thing. We want to be in control. We want to be the people who make the decisions. We want to be like God. The pages of Scripture are filled with examples of this. This permeates human history, permeates biblical history, people doing what they want to do. People saying to God, well, wait a minute. Have you thought about it this way? Cain did it. Moses did it. Jonah did it. Gideon did it. Peter did it. Paul did it, Saul did it, James and John and their mother did it, Ananias and Sapphira did it. I mean, it's, it's more difficult to find somebody in the Bible who didn't do it than somebody who did. It's human nature. We want to call our own shots. So in some way, everybody in this room is a closet existentialist. Some, everybody in this room wants to run life the way we want to do it. We want to tailor our faith to fit our own agenda our own ends, our own priorities. I mean, think about the classic question that teenagers ask in a sex ed class. The hand goes up. How far is too far? That's what kids want to know, right? What they're really saying is, tell me where the line is so I can go right up to the line and do, and get, do this much and still be okay. That's what I want to know. And that's what we want to know, too at a more sophisticated level, not necessarily about sex, but in the rest of our lives. Tell me where the line is. I'll go right up to the line, stay right there. That's what I want to know. That's the way we deal with morality. We don't like the idea of lordship because the word suggests submission and humility and servanthood, and we don't want any part of that. We want to call our own shots. We want to do things the way we want to do them. So the biggest problem with coming to terms with lordship is simply we don't want to surrender our autonomy, the right to make our own decisions. But there's other problems as well. There's other objections we have, things that make us look at the whole issue of lordship and go, I don't know. One of them is this. 
I think in evangelical Christian circles, we have done a very poor job of communicating what it means to become a Christian. I mean, think about the language we use when we're talking to somebody about becoming a Christian. We say, just invite Christ to come into your life. Just open the door and let Christ come in. Now, what that suggests is that we have the power. We have the control. We're the ones who are in charge of the transaction. Now, that, frankly, that seems a bit presumptuous. This is the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent Lord of the universe, and we're saying, well, okay, okay, yeah, you can come in. All right, I'll give you a shot. I mean, that's implicitly what's in that language. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those words, but the problem is if we stop there. If we don't say it's a lot more than simply a salvation experience involved in the life of being a Christian. It's a lot more than that. We talk about the Savior part, but not the Lord part. And a lot of people, I think, have such a superficial understanding of what it means to be a Christian because all they've heard is invite Christ in. And again, in giving the control to us, we switch the, we, we switch the formula. Being a Christian means we submit our will to his. We die to our own priorities. We die to our own agendas. We do what he asks us to do. We've, we've engaged in the most serious, life-changing relationship there can ever be. And yet somehow we don't communicate that very well. So I think some people struggle with the idea of lordship because they just don't get the idea at all. Now, there's a third problem as we address the issue of lordship, too. And this is a big one. Life can be really, really hard. Life can throw some really difficult circumstances our way so that we struggle. We're in pain. There's a lot of suffering in this world, and it's impossible to escape it. There's not a person in this room who does not struggle with serious issues, or maybe not at the moment, but certainly has done so and will again. It may be illness. It may be death. It may be job loss. It may be financial problems. It may be addiction. It may be relationship struggles. It's something. The list is a lot longer than the one I just gave, but it's something. And so when we look at God and say, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to serve a God like this who's made such a mess of my life. I mean, you're Lord, and this is what my life is like? Seriously? This is it? How can I trust a God like that? You know what? That's a serious question. That's a good question. It's a legitimate question. Because life is very painful for a lot of people. And it's very painful for all of us at some time. So what do we do with that? What's the answer to that? This is not a sermon on, excuse me a moment. This is not a sermon on how to deal with pain and suffering, but I do want to address it briefly because it, it matters. I think the starting point for understanding how do we address that issue is the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for our sins, yes. That's central to Christian theology, and that's important for us to understand. He went to the cross as a statement of love on his behalf for us because he recognizes that the world is broken, the world is evil, the world is cruel. And he took away our sin, but he's also saying on the cross, I'm here to take all of that on my shoulders. I'm here to make a broken world whole. I'm, to make an, I'm here to make an unjust world just. I'm here to make it all whole and complete, as it should have been, as it was meant to be. And I will pay the price on the cross so that it all can be put back together. Now, the problem is that we live in the interim between the promise of the cross 
and the reality of fulfillment. And in that, in that interim, there's a lot of mess. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. We await the fulfillment of the promise of the cross. And so we, we're left to trust. We're left to hope. We're left to have faith. And that's very difficult. We're in the darkest times of our life. But ultimately, the decision is exactly that. Do we trust God? Even in the darkest times of our life, can we look at him and say, Lord, I don't like it. I don't get it. This is horrible. But I trust you anyway. That's a real act of faith. That's a real understanding of the depth of the cross and the meaning of the cross. And it's very difficult to do. So... We struggle with the lordship then for three, three reasons, at least. We don't want to give up our autonomy. We have a superficial understanding, maybe, of what it means to be a Christian. And the circumstances of life can be very, very difficult. But I think on at least a few levels, we do understand the idea of lordship very easily. We recognize it when we see it. And I think that's suggested in, in Psalm 19, which says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, we get that, don't we? I mean, we see that. Every one of us, I think, has probably been out in the countryside somewhere where we can actually see the stars and be overwhelmed with a sense of grandeur and majesty and awe of the immensity of the universe. You see the millions of stars in the sky, and there's just a sense of, oh, my goodness, the beauty here is overwhelming, and the immensity of, of this universe is astounding. I think it's a transcendent moment, or can be, for us to stand in that moment and to look at what God has created. And then you see the sunset, you see dawn, and we get it there too. We see the heavens declare the glory of God. So I think on that level we understand it. And then Psalm 24 where it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, we're good with that too, aren't we? I mean, we get that. I mean, we go out in nature and we see the glory of creation. You see the ocean, you see Niagara Falls, you see the cycle of the seasons, you see thunderstorms, you see Old Faithful, you see a rainforest, and we see the glory of creation and we go, oh my goodness, God, you have created such a beautiful, beautiful world. Now, we go to the zoo in our family fairly often, I mean, at least once a year, and every time we do, I say the same thing, and every time I do, my kids roll, roll their eyes. They know I'm going to say it, they think it's stupid, and they don't like it. We go to the zoo, and there's maybe, I don't know, let's make up a number, 1,500 animals in St. Louis Zoo. It's just a tiny fraction of the number of animals in all of creation. And when I see those animals, I walk around from cage to cage or from area to area. This is what I say. How did God ever think of that? How did God ever think of that? And I say it six or seven times, and they just, my, again, my kids hate it. But I really mean it. I mean, if I was given the, right, if I was given the power to create the animal kingdom, and you said, go, let your mind run riot, I would have come up maybe, maybe with a bear. I might have come up with a lion. I hope I would have come up with dogs. I like dogs. I might have come up with a, a few fish, you know, two or three. That's enough. We're done. I would have come up with a bird or two, and then I'd be pretty much done. I would have never thought of a grasshopper. Wouldn't have done it. Kangaroo? Never entered my mind. Hippopotamus? No way. Earthworm? Not a chance. Platypus? I don't even know how God did that. I mean, seriously, you think, about, you think about the enormity and the beauty of God's creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, 
the world and those who dwell therein. We're surrounded by the beauty of God's creation, and we see it, and yet we don't see it. I got back earlier this month from backpacking in the mountains in Montana. Now, when you go to the mountains and you see the Russian streams and you see the waterfalls, the mountain meadows, the snow-capped peaks, the mountain valleys, it's awesome. And most people who have any faith in God have the same reaction to the mountains. You say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the glory of this creation. And that's appropriate, and that's the way we should react. But let me ask you a question. Why don't we walk down the streets of Kirkwood and have the same reaction? And I'm very serious. Now, you may say, well, it's obvious, right? I mean, Montana versus Kirkwood, come on. But in all seriousness, if the rain stops, and I think we all hope it doesn't, but if the rain does stop today, go out in, go out in your backyard and do a 360 panoramic view and look at the diversity of life that you have in your own yard and your neighbors have in their yard. I mean, it's incredible. The trees and the shrubs and the plants, and, the, and, and I'm not a botanist. I don't know what their names are. But I look, at, I look at the plant life just in my yard and go, oh, my goodness. Look what God has given us here. And then you expand that throughout the entire world, and it's incredible. And yet we're blind to it, aren't we? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but we walk down the streets every day with our eyes blind to the beauty of what God has given us here. And it's not just in nature. I mean, he's given us work to do. And we get up on Monday morning, and the alarm goes off. We complain and say, I don't want to go to work. Turn off the alarm clock. But really... Isn't work a blessing, a chance to provide for our families, a chance to do work that is hopefully meaningful to us, to work with people we like and respect and provide a service for other people? And I know not everybody in this room enjoys their job, but for those who do, isn't it a blessing to have a job you enjoy? That's a blessing from God. That's a miracle of God. How about our families? We come home from work at the end of the day. We walk in. It's our, maybe our spouse might be our children, might be our brothers and sisters somebody, whoever's there, and we take them for granted too, don't we? We often don't see them as blessings. We take the blessings of God for granted. But his lordship is everywhere. It's everywhere. That's exactly what Abraham Kuyper was talking about. Kuyper was a Dutch theologian and a Dutch politician, and he famously said about the issue of lordship, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And it's true. We create this secular religious split in our lives, saying, well, church is about God, and Bible study is about God, and when I read, have, have my personal devotions, that's about God, but the rest of it, that's secular. But that's exactly wrong. That's not what this says. That's not what Kuyper's saying. That's not what the Bible says. Everything is to be done to glorify God. Everything is a gift from God. The way we do business, the way we go to school, the way we raise our children, the way we use our leisure, the way we treat our neighbors, the way we spend our money, the way we plan our futures, the way we use our bodies, those are all to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. All of it is. It's all a gift from God, and it's all to be used to glorify Him. And yet we don't see it that way. We don't understand that Lordship is pervasive. It's universal. All that we do is to be done to glorify God. The work of the plumber, the work of the electrician, the computer programmer, the interior designer, the attorney, whatever your job is, it's as, is as sacred as the work that Tom Ricks does on Sunday morning and stands up here and proclaims the gospel. Because all work is to be done to honor him. All work is to be done to glorify him. All work is a gift from him. And what Tom does is different in kind from what the plumber does, 
But the former should fix pipes to the glory of God, just as surely as Tom proclaims the word to the glory of God. That's what Psalm 72 is saying when it says this. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now look at the words. Forever and the whole earth. That's all time, all places. Everywhere, everything we do should declare the glory of God. Not sometimes, not when it's convenient, not when we're thinking about it. And that idea is echoed in this verse in Chronicles, First Chronicles. As I read it, I want you to look at how many times the word all is used. Yours, O Lord, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the, in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. All that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. All, every bit of it. Again, the classroom, the office, the golf course, the computer screen, the family room, the kitchen, the bedroom, it's all places where God is to be Lord. And yet, we don't see it that way. God calls us to be totally faithful. And yet, we don't do it. None of us in this room would do it. We're all sinners. We all fail. God understands that. What he's looking for is us to incline our hearts to him, to look at him and say, Lord, today I want to live for you. And we will do it imperfectly. Again, we will fail. But it's the inclination of the heart and the mind and the life to Christ that is what God is looking for. I mean, look at, these, look at this verse from 2 Chronicles 16.9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He's looking to support those who incline their hearts to him. That's what he's asking from us. Now, it's interesting to me that a husband or wife who is 85% faithful, is not faithful at all. And yet few of us in this room are 85% faithful to Christ. We bring a much higher standard to our marriages than we do to our relationship with God. And yet scripture is filled with ideas and verses that indicate the importance of lordship if you simply read the Bible that way. It's all throughout the Bible. Let me prove it to you by showing you a, a random series of verses just to sort of see the issue of lordship. Matthew 5, 44 to 47 talks about how we should deal with conflict. It says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, doesn't that speak to the issue of lordship? I nurse a grudge. I don't forgive. God says, bring that before me. I need to be lord of relationships and of conflict. Look at what it says about how we use our time. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything, it says. Everything. Look at what it says about our thought life. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Even our thought life, our priorities, our values, our plans. Look at what it says about our attitude toward money. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures in heaven, the next verse says. Look at what it says about the way we 
through their body. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, doesn't that speak to what we eat, what we do in the bedroom, how we exercise, or if we exercise? I mean, doesn't that address that? That's what Kuiper's talking about when he said, and let me read the words again, there's not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. So, as Christians, we struggle against this idea. We don't want to give up our freedom, and yet this is what we're called to do. So the question really is, do we think we can find security in our own wisdom or in his? I mean, think about Sartre. Think about the loneliness and the emptiness that he talked about. Think about Hemingway, the loneliness and the emptiness that he talked about. Or think about a character created by William Shakespeare. Shakespeare created one of his most memorable characters, Macbeth, who at the beginning of the play is a great hero of Scotland. He's won a great victory for King Duncan. He is universally respected and beloved. He is one of the great men of Scotland. And yet, through the course of the play, he makes a series of terrible decisions. He kills the king, usurps the throne, kills his best friend Banquo, and kills other people as well. And by the end of the play, he's become a monster. Near the end of the play, his wife, who is consumed by her own guilt and her own responsibility in all that has happened, kills herself. And the messenger comes and tells Macbeth that his wife is dead. This is his reaction to the news of his wife's death. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now what Shakespeare has done is created a metaphor. He says that life is like, we are like actors on a stage. We are poor players, poor actors, who's come out and strut and fret. Now that's Shakespeare terminology for bad actors. We play a part in the, on the stage, but we do it very, very badly. We're full of sound and fury. We're idiots. Sound and fury means we just say a lot of words that don't really ultimately mean what? They mean nothing. So Shakespeare wouldn't have used the word existentialist, but he created a character who was one, a man who made his own choices, who defined his own morality, who thought he knew better about the way things should be done. And it all added up to what? Nothing. Now, John Calvin uses the same metaphor when he describes the world as well. Calvin says the world is God's theater. And we are actors in God's great drama. And he says that every man and every woman of God has a role to play in God's great theater. That every day we step out on stage. Every day in our actions, in our words, in our attitudes, we are players in a great drama. Now, we can be the poor players of Shakespeare's drama, or we can be the great actors in Calvin's or in God's. Because the problem, of course, is that it's so easy for us to go Macbeth's way, to do exactly what he does. And that is the road to bankruptcy, moral, spiritual bankruptcy. Years ago, the elders of Green Tree Community Church said, we are going to create a series of core values, and one of them is going to be lordship, which at first glance, glance seems strange, and yet think about it. What was The wisdom behind that was simply saying this. We need to bring our lives into the lordship of Christ, to recognize his goodness, his supremacy, his majesty. Because in that there is health, in that there is meaning, in that there is purpose, in that there is peace. I don't think anybody, any of us wants to live the life of Jean-Paul Sartre or Ernest Hemingway or Macbeth. 
Time Magazine asked the question, is God dead? If he is, then I don't know what we do. We're helpless. We're alone. And life is futile. But in the idea of lordship, we live with hope. We live with purpose. We live with meaning. And we live as servants of a holy God who loves us more. And that ought to give us great hope. Let's close in prayer.